and welcome to Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's beaten path. I'm Mike Allen, here with another story about historically significant people, places, and events from Connecticut's long and fabled past. Today on Amazing Tales, if you live in Connecticut or have passed through the state a few times, odds are you've spent at least some time on the Merritt Parkway, also referred to as Route 15. It's a beautiful state highway with a fascinating history, not the least of which was the shrewd scheme involving illegal payoffs that was used to get it built. Helping me tell this story today is the foremost expert on transportation history in Connecticut, Richard DeLuca of Cheshire. He's the author of Post Roads and Iron Horses and Paved Roads and Public Money. And now, payoffs for the picturesque Merritt Parkway. Connecticut's Merritt Parkway is a marvelous and majestic road in almost every sense. It's only 37 miles long, but it's beautiful on virtually every stretch, primarily through the verdant and attractive landscape known as Fairfield County, the Gold Coast of Connecticut. Just off the highway in either direction are multi-million dollar homes. This parkway snakes through this valuable land, giving motorists options to get to these locales, or to drive from them to New York City. The Merritt was one of the very first parkways built in the United States. It was actually envisioned as a drive through a park. It begins on the Connecticut-New York border at Greenwich, right where Westchester County's Hutchinson River Parkway ends. Like the Hutch, there are no billboards, which enhances the driving experience. There's an endless continuum of trees, shrubbery, and vistas to please the eye. And you can also admire the 69 bridges, each with its own individual design. They were all made of concrete, a low-cost alternative to natural stonework that had to be pursued during the Depression when the highway was built in the 1930s. You can thank George Dunkelberger, the chief highway architect, for those original designs. Now, George was not particularly well-known or accomplished as an architect when he took on the job of designing the highway's bridges, but he creatively used concrete to create designs and mini-sculptures on the different bridges. Virtually everybody would recognize the famous Nike wings in Stratford and the Native Americans in Norwalk. The other thing you can look at while you're on the Merritt is cars. Lots of them. The Merritt is a frustratingly congested highway during rush hour. There are just two lanes of traffic in each direction, and there aren't a lot of options for breakdown lanes. So when there is an accident or a breakdown, traffic can rapidly come to a standstill, stranding motorists for long periods of time. Commuters like it because it takes you to places in Fairfield County that are not easily reachable through the labyrinth of other state and local byways. Also, there are no trucks allowed, just pickup trucks with specialized combination license plates, meaning that their truck is for both personal and commercial use. The road was opened in 1940. The speed limit back then on the Merritt was 40 miles an hour. The road was designed to handle 18,000 cars per day. Well, heck, there were only 400,000 cars registered in the entire state back then. Well, today, experts say the average speed outside of rush hour is 73 miles per hour. The parkway carries about 90,000 cars per day on average, more than four times the vehicles it was designed to handle. And in Connecticut right now, there are nearly 1.5 million cars registered. 
Many of the off-and-on ramps are way too short and have sharp, dangerous curves, particularly for exiting traffic, and it can catch the unaware driver off guard. The reason this highway was even built, however, is due to congestion on a different highway, the Boston Post Road, or U.S. Route 1. Just so you understand the significance of the building of the Merritt Parkway, you really have to understand the significance of U.S. Route 1. Before the current interstate highway system even came into existence, starting with the Eisenhower administration in the 1950s, there was an earlier version of a U.S. highway network. It was called simply the U.S. highway system. In the early 1900s, cars were just beginning to come on the scene. Well, the government needed to replace horse and buggy and stagecoach paths with paved roadways for these newfangled automobiles. At first, they used the names to identify these routes that were used to identify the trails they were paving over. The Atlantic Highway, the Lincoln Highway, the Jefferson Highway, the Old Spanish Trail, and that's just to name a few. Well, this worked for a while, but soon it became confusing for the driving public trying to remember all those names. So in 1925, about 100 years ago, the government turned to a new system, one that would instead use numbers to identify roadways. U.S. Route 1 was the original numbered highway. Two lanes in each direction, a model for others to follow, which they did. It connected all of the historic and important early cities in the nation's history, including the three cities that had served as the nation's capital before it was finalized in Washington, D.C., New York, Philadelphia, and Princeton, New Jersey. Yes, Princeton served as our provincial capital for five months in 1783, from June to November. U.S. Route 1 was built at the time to be the North-South Highway on the Atlantic coast of the U.S., and it remains the longest North-South Highway in the country, stretching 2,370 miles. Route 1 goes from the town of Kent in Maine on the Canadian border all the way south to Miami. And while today you would drive from Maine to Florida using I-95, you could, in theory, still make that trip exclusively on Route 1. Richard DeLuca is an expert on how Connecticut developed over 400 years, particularly when it comes to looking at different transportation systems that were used to get us around. He reminds us that the stretch of US-1 that runs through Connecticut was known even in the old days when it was a dirt highway as the Boston Post Road. Historically, it was a critical connector in the colonial era between New York, Hartford, and Boston. Well, by the 1920s, it was handling twice the number of cars per day that it was designed to handle. No sooner did they, they build it uh, when they said, well, you know, Sunday afternoons on, on the post road, it's bumper to bumper for miles. Richard says the pattern began in the early part of the 20th century. After the First World War from 1920 on through, more and more people, every family's got an automobile. Population's growing and everything, so traffic is just getting out of hand. At the time, traffic wasn't the only topic of discussion. Critics thought the Route 1 highway looked distasteful. There were billboards and lots of businesses springing up alongside the road. With all of the commercial enterprises came the need for trucks to supply those businesses. Plus, the drivers entering and exiting Route 1 to get to and from those businesses made navigating a car even more of a challenge. Well, Richard started his career as a traffic engineer, and he looks at this and says the brilliance of what transpired was the concept of limited access highways. 
Not only would this help alleviate the congestion on Route 1, but it would do so in a unique way that should bring even more effective relief. These would be highways that would place limits on your ability to access them as a driver. You'd need to use one of the relatively infrequent entrances or exits to get on or off the highway. The rest of the time, you'd just be traveling along without the disruption of businesses or other roadways bringing traffic onto the dedicated routes. Let's see if we can take some of that traffic and move it inland. Leave the, the businesses and the commercial aspect of the post road, leave that where it is, but take the regular guy that's just driving through and we'll build a parkway for him. At the time it was built, the Merritt Parkway was the longest such limited access highway in the country. The Hutchinson River Parkway, designed by the celebrated urban highway and park planner Robert Moses, was 20 miles long, while the Merritt, which would follow, was 37 miles long. Robert Moses was doing the same thing in New York, and he built his little Hutchinson River Parkway right up to the Connecticut line. And Connecticut said, oh, maybe we ought to just keep it, this thing going. When the decision was made to proceed with the Merritt in the 1930s, it became the most ambitious and expensive highway project ever in U.S. history. Putting on his transportation engineer hat for a moment, Richard says planners needed to be thinking about creating a system for getting vehicles from one point to another. Or, as stated in the infamous movie Field of Dreams, if you build it, they will come. If you build a road like this, you attract a lot of traffic. What do we do with them when it comes to the end? That's what I mean about transportation being a system. What are we going to do with this volume of people now that we've brought to the river? As in the Housatonic River, the geographic boundary between Fairfield and New Haven counties. At the very end of the Merritt, you cross from Fairfield County over the Sikorsky Memorial Bridge, where you can see the late Igor Sikorsky's huge helicopter manufacturing plant, and all this to enter New Haven County. So while it was fine to build the Merritt, giving drivers the option to bypass congested Route 1 between Greenwich and Fairfield, as Richard said, the real question remained, what do you do after that? So they decide... Well, well, we'll cross the river with them, and then we'll just kind of build the road down back to Route 1 again. Well, today that short stretch of highway is what's known as the Milford Connector, which connects the Merritt, I-95, and Route 1. Well, this solution was not very well received by the good people of Fairfield and Milford, and so Richard says there seemed to be only one plausible next step. But it didn't take anybody long to figure out we just got to keep this thing going. We got to get to Boston. I mean, what else are you going to do with a road like that? Well, that's the backstory of why the Merritt Parkway was built. Now the back room story of how the parkway was built, the part that a lot of people aren't aware of. If you tried to build the Merritt Parkway today through very expensive Fairfield County, land acquisition costs alone would probably be enough to scuttle the undertaking. Real estate prices in the county are among the highest anywhere in the U.S. In fact, according to the website Landwatch, which tracks parcels for sale of farms, ranches, and just plain open space, the average price today for an acre of such available land in Fairfield County is $2 million. That's just for one acre. Imagine needing to acquire enough land for a 37-mile parkway. Well, back in the 1930s, Connecticut had a state highway department, and John McDonald had been its commissioner for nearly two decades. 
He knew a challenge when he saw one. In those days, Fairfield County real estate was already far more expensive than other locales, and using eminent domain to determine a fair price for land to be used as a highway would make the costs astronomical. McDonald sought and got approval for a plan to bypass eminent domain procedures. He wouldn't tell anybody where the route was going to go because they had to buy the land, right? And they didn't want to give that secret away too quickly. So he said, you know what? We'll speed up the, the idea as I'll hire this real estate agent to go and purchase all the land. McDonald's idea was that with the route for the roadway known only by one realtor, if the state could buy the properties without creating a fuss or a lot of fanfare, landowners wouldn't jack up the price of their land knowing the highway was coming through. McDonald selected a realtor to do this hush-hush job, G. Leroy Kemp. Jack Kemp, as he was called, was from Darien, Connecticut, and was closely connected to the Republican Party there. He needed help. There was going to be a lot of land to be purchased. So they decided, well, we're never going to be able to build another Merritt Parkway. We better buy double the right-of-way. So normally you might buy 150 feet of right-of-way for the kind of road that they were figuring. So they bought 300 feet. And he said, we'll put the Merritt Parkway on this 150, and then when we come back and expand it, we'll put it on the other 150. So Kemp hired two other realtors to help him close the many land deals that lay ahead. Rumors start to circulate that this guy Kemp is not all on the up and up here. You know, he's paying huge bucks for property that's assessed at a particular level. The scheme, according to Richard and published reports, involved the gross overpayment for the value of the land with the bloated realtor commission being used for improper purposes. And he's getting a piece kicked back to him. Richard says that once everything eventually became known, there were some outlandish discoveries learned by the officials as to how much Kemp was actually paying for these properties. Ten times the, the market value, okay? And he even had like finder's fees for the, for the county uh, Republican Party chiefs and all sorts of stuff. I mean, he was spreading the money around to try to keep everybody quiet. Richard says the whole episode might have stayed at the rumor stage were it not for some rather strong-arm tactics. It was decided to form a new public works department, and the head of that new group decided he wanted control over the highways as well. He got the Attorney General for Connecticut to issue a ruling that went along with that, and ultimate responsibility for highways moved over to the public works group, even though there had been a highway department for many years. Richard says it was the equivalent of a political coup. Once the Public Works Department officially assumed oversight, they went through the highway files, and they uncovered all of the land transaction records. There was a grand jury convened, and Kemp was sentenced to jail for several years. Meantime, there was still a highway to build, and wealthy landowners in Fairfield County decided they wanted to have a say in the matter. So they formed the Fairfield County Planning Association. It was a non-governmental organization, but it was led by longtime Congressman Schuler Merritt. He steered their activities and kept the highway to the size and scope that you see today. And in consideration for all of his efforts, the new highway was named after him. 
Well, none of the scandals should detract from the fact that an unbelievably beautiful parkway was built in Fairfield County, at the time, the largest such highway project ever envisioned in the U.S. It was designed to be beautiful, no billboards, no trucks, and special attention to the design of the bridges and overall landscape. This highway, in fact, is so special that in 1991, it achieved particularly impressive fame. It was granted membership into the prestigious National Register of Historic Places, limiting changes that can occur to its simple beauty in the future. And the governor at the time that all this was happening? Well, he was the one who had to shoulder the blame for the scandal, but his administration was also responsible for realizing that an extension to the merit was necessary. And so that stretch was named after him. And that chief elected official? Yes, he was Governor Wilbur Cross, the namesake for the Wilbur Cross Parkway that picks up where the Merritt Parkway ends and takes drivers nearly to Hartford, where they can connect with other roads in the highway system to get to Boston, Springfield, Albany, and beyond. That's it for this episode of Amazing Tales from Off and On, Connecticut's Beaten Path. I want to thank my guest for this episode, Richard DeLuca of Cheshire, author of Post Roads and Iron Horses and Paved Roads and Public Money. Please follow me at my main podcast website, amazingtalesct.podbean.com. And also in between episodes, please check out my page on Facebook at Amazing Tales CT. I'd love hearing from you. Then you can send me an idea for a story you'd like to hear me look into. If you liked what you heard today, please spread the word with your family and friends. We'll see you next time here on Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's Beaten Path. I'm Mike Allen. Be safe and stay healthy. Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's Beaten Path is a production of True North Associates, LLC. (laughs) 